All right, everybody, good evening to you all. We are in Isaiah. We're going to begin chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, here in just a second. Though, having said that, in order to um, kind of properly appreciate how Isaiah 9 begins, we're going to start where we ended last week, which is at the end of Isaiah chapter 8, just the last verse of the chapter. So go to Isaiah 8, verse 22. We're going to start there and just kind of read the verse, summarize the chapter that preceded it, and then dive into the next chapter. Because there was no chapter break when Isaiah wrote his his, his book. Um, there are paragraphs, there are you know, obvious breaks in the narrative as you read it, but it's not quite as chopped up the way we chop things up, 66 chapters and 1,200, however many it is, verses. Um, so, Isaiah 8, verse 22, And they shall look into the earth, and behold trouble and darkness, dimness and anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. So what you're just where you just end in chapter 8 is kind of a prophecy of the children of Israel as they're going into captivity, uh, and children of Judah, the southern nation, going into captivity, which will be in Babylon. And Isaiah is describing it in this very poetic way how this people who had given themselves over to idolatry are now going to find themselves without any source of help because God has turned them over to these uh, pagan, uh, this pagan empire. And they rejected God, so what are they going to do when the Babylonian army comes in to take them away to Chaldea? They're going to look, in the previous verses, they're going to look up to the sky and they're going to find no help. Here in this verse, they're going to look down to the ground and they're going to find no help. They're going to look all around them, they're going to find nothing but anguish and despair and darkness as they're carried away into, out of, the enlightened city of Jerusalem into darkness. And that's where the chapter ends, but there's no chapter break. So keep your mind as the reader... You just read that, and the very next sentence is not chapter 9. The very next sentence is, verse 1, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as it was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. You see how especially that very first beginning uh, of the verse just plays right off of where the previous chapter left off. They're going to see as they walk into Babylon a period of darkness. But that darkness will not last forever. And it will not be darkness that is comparable to what is more in the immediate future for Judah and Israel in particular. Which is what Isaiah is spending most of his time talking about. Isaiah kind of jumped ahead and looked backward. And he's going to do that again here in just a minute. He jumps ahead and he looks backward and he sees the nation going into Babylonian captivity. But nobody's talking about Babylon right now. Babylon is not what anybody's worried about. All the people are worried about right now is Assyria. And Assyria is coming. Assyria is going to penetrate the northern empire, the northern kingdom. They're going to break Israel. Then they're going to come into the southern kingdom from the north and start marching down toward Jerusalem. They're going to take city after city, town after town, village after village, people after people, all the way until they get encamped at the city itself of Jerusalem. And that's when God's going to say, well, Nelly, no more. So as that happens, it's going to be this devastating, conquesting period. And so God is saying, you're going to go into this darkness of Babylon, but before that, you've got a, a, a prior vexation. You've got a different kind of thing you need to be thinking about. Don't, don't look so far ahead and just keep your eyes over there. Look in the immediate. Look to not next month, but to next week, in a metaphorical sense. Look at some of the things he says. He says, the dimness will not be permanent, the dimness shall not be, but it will be hard. 
and it will be like what will happen to Zebulun and Naphtali. Those are two words to describe the upper, what in Jesus' day would become upper and lower Galilee. So you have the northern Israel. You have uh, upper, upper northern Israel and lower northern Israel. Uh, upper, northern and southern of the northern kingdom. You have Assyria coming in and taking that piece by piece, chunk by chunk, as they're making their way south. And God calls this, notice in the verse, uh, he will lightly afflict the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Is that what your Bible says? Well, I guarantee if you polled the people, no one there is going to describe it with the adjective light. No one's going to call it with the adverb lightly. No one's going to say this was an easy time. It's going to be difficult and hard. But God is looking at the bigger picture, and he says What's, what Babylon's going to do to you is going to be worse. This is going to be a light affliction compared to that. But it's going to be hard for you. Just, God says, I see the bigger picture. I'm balancing in the scales here. And you've got darkness coming. In the meantime, you have some light affliction even before that happens. Speaking of darkness, look again at verse 2. Or not again, but look at verse 2. And again, see how it ties in with the end of chapter 8. The people are marching into darkness. End of chapter 8. Verse 2. The people that walk in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them has the light shine. I want you to notice the, the tense, T-E-N-S-E, the tense that Isaiah uses here, especially in the beginning of verse 2. He doesn't say the people that will walk in darkness. He doesn't say the people that are walking in darkness. What does he say? What's your say? The people who walk. The people who walk past tense. So Isaiah, what he's doing is... Here's Isaiah writing this in like 736 or so B.C., all right? He is predicting something that's going to happen in 586, I think it is. Nobody called me. But I think it's 586, Babylon invades and takes Jerusalem. So you've got roughly, I don't do math, let's say 200 years, just to be easy. You have 200 years, and then he's looking even beyond that to, and I'm going to put a cross there, but it's actually to the birth of Jesus that he's looking ahead to right now. So what he's doing as the prophet is he's not saying, you will, you will, you will, looking forward. He takes his inspired eye over it and looks backwards. And he says, you were, you were, you were, or you have been, or you were doing this. What were they doing? They were walking. Isaiah goes all the way back over here, gets on a high vantage point, and looks back on the past. And he says, I saw you walking in the darkness. And as you walk through this darkness, suddenly you saw a great light. That's what he's doing. That's the way the prophet is prophesying. Okay? Look again at verse 2. The people, Israel, Judah, that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, which in this context is Babylon. You people going into captivity, leaving, being forced out of your homeland to dwell in this foreign land, this pagan Gentile land. You will come out of that land and you will see as you come out of it a light shining waiting for you. This is messianic this prophecy this is isaiah saying you're going to this dark time but god has a plan you're going to have to suffer these hardships in between before that dark time happens likely afflicted he'll, he'll call it in the previous verse and then into captivity you'll go and into darkness you will be and it will be harsh and bitter and terrible and you'll think oh god has abandoned us but isaiah says then you'll come out of it and you'll see like this light at the end of the tunnel, and you'll walk toward it, and then it'll just open, and you'll be in the era of the Messiah. And that's what they're rooting for. Now, we, we talked about this. We talked about Daniel. Whenever ever I, I teach Ezekiel, the same thing will come up then too. 
What the prophets do when they talk about time periods is they do a lot of condensing. In actual history, the period between getting out of captivity and the period of the Messiah, well, we had Daniel chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, if you were in that class. You have all kinds of things happening. Things that we would put markers on a historical, you know, dateline. And we would say, you know, they, they come and they reestablish their, their presence in their homeland and then the Seleucid Empire conquers them and then Judah Maccabee defeats them and the Romans conquer them and then finally Jesus comes. You would have all these different markers on the date line. But God doesn't worry about that because God doesn't care about any of that. God is looking at his big picture plan. And in God's big picture plan, you go into captivity, you get out of captivity and the Messiah comes. In God's mind, it's bang, bang. You get out of captivity and you meet Jesus. But it's like... 300 years between those two periods. But what's 300 years to God? It's like, yeah. you get out of captivity, you meet Jesus. And that's the way the prophets talk about it. You come out of darkness into light. Well, I guarantee you when they're in the middle of the Seleucid Empire and Antiochus Epiphanes is putting swine on the altar and putting them into slavery, they weren't saying, boy, isn't this light? No, they were calling it a dark period. But in the mind of God, it's just a blip. It's just it's a speed bump. You get out of darkness in Babylon, the next big thing on the calendar, the Messiah comes. And that's the way he prophesies it. That's the way he talks about it. Inter interestingly, curiously, coincidentally, maybe, or maybe purposefully, the two places mentioned as suffering the most uh, in terms of name drop, Zebulun and Naphtali. Jesus' ministry began in Zebulun and Naphtali. It began in Upper and Lower Galilee. He never even went to Jerusalem until much later in his ministry. I say much later. So many months into his ministry. He started his ministry in the place that here is said, you guys are going to suffer this affliction. You're going to be the canary in the coal mine. You're going to drop dead first to let everybody else know bad times are here. And so the hardships will begin with Zebulun and Naphtali. But when the Messiah comes, his ministry, which can be boiled down to hard times no more, begins in Zebulun and Naphtali. It's the opposite of a canary in a coal mine. It drops dead in the beginning, and then it's brought to life at the end. Which, if that's not a metaphor for Jesus, nothing is. Verse 3. Now, I'm going to start, and then I'm going to stop, and I'm going to have you read it. Because the King James translation makes a gross error here. So we're going to have to correct that. But verse 3 of Isaiah 9. Mine begins, Isaiah speaking to God. You have multiplied the nation. Everybody with me so far? Yes. Now mine says, and not increase the joy. What does yours say? You have increased its joy. I think we'd all agree, big distinction there. Yes? Yes. Should not be not. I don't know why it was put that way. It was some copyist somewhere did it, and someone forgot to check their math and carry a one, and suddenly a not popped in there when there shouldn't have been a not. It's not a not. You have increased the joy. It's... It, even, even if it, it should be not, there's no way to, to tie the knot. No, no pun intended. There's no way to reconcile that because it doesn't make any sense contextually. It only, it only makes sense contextually with it, the knot being not there. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased the joy. The joy before, according to the joy of the harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This is Isaiah talking about this golden, enlightened era of the Messiah. We have all this hardship, this light affliction. Then we have a real period of darkness. And after that, this light in which joy is increased, in which happiness comes, in which the nation of God, the people of God, is multiplied exponentially. Think about it. The people who go into captivity are a broken people. They go into captivity, the, the southern kingdom of Judah does. But before that, the northern kingdom has already been defeated by Assyria. 
So half, if not like 65% of the total population of the children of Israel in both kingdoms has already been obliterated. Then you have the southern kingdom. So a fraction of that people goes into Babylon. And a fraction of that people comes out. We're really whittling this down. And yet the way God describes it is, in the era of the Messiah, my people will be numerous. Because if you recall the prophecy he told Abraham, they will be numerous. What was the illustration God used? How did he say? Was it the stars or the sand? That's one. Both of them. There's two. One to Israel, one to Abraham. One is the grains of sand on the beach and one is stars in the sky. Because the people who go into captivity and the people who come out of captivity and the people who welcome their Messiah, their, their Messiah, their Jewish Hebrew Messiah, will not be the sole people of God. The Messiah will save the world. Not everybody, of course, never will take them up on it, but anybody now can be saved. Anybody can become part of that covenant relationship with God, which was an aforetime only afforded to the children, literal circumcised children of Abraham. But now, all of us Gentiles in this room right now can be blessed with salvation. That's the multiplication of the nation. That's Romans chapter 9, but that's a different study right now. So you have multiplied the nation. You've increased the, the amount of joy that is to go around. Like it's, like it's like the joy in the harvest when people have reaped such a great bounty that they say, Here, corn, corn for everybody. I got, I got beans, beans to share. I got more beans. I don't have to do it. You're just spreading the love everywhere. The salvation of Jesus will be like a bounty so bountiful that people will just be sharing it left and right. There's a word for that. Evangelism. That's the prophecy. It's, this is what the era of the Messiah will look like. We've got so much salvation. We just can't keep it all in. We just got to start telling people all about it. Verse 4. Here's another way to describe the era of the Messiah. You have broken the yoke of his burden. This is Isaiah talking to God about Judah, these people in captivity. So, fitting metaphor, burden, yoke, uh, you know, shackle, slavery. You've broken all that. And the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, this, this being um, enslaved, this being beaten down, this being in submission to other people has been taken away. Instead, it will be like in the day of Midian. What's that a reference to? Anybody know? Who defeated the Midianites? Give me his name rhymes with Midian. Gideon. Yeah, Gideon. Gideon defeated Midian. Well, God did. Gideon was just there, basically. Um, but yeah, so it's it's like you had the, the Midianites came in, they oppressed God's people, they enslaved God's people, you know, at the time, and then through Gideon and his army of you know losers, through God, they all defeated everybody. And that's the idea, is God is going to take this small thing and make a great thing with it. Now keep that idea in mind because that's going to come into play in the next two verses. It's verse 4 where we're at. What of all metaphors to use to describe salvation of the nation, of all the different victories and battles that have happened over the years, Isaiah is inspired to reference the Midian victory by Gideon. A circumstance where an unlikely savior rose up to the challenge and defeated impossible odds. Gideon was not John Rambo. Gideon was not this great strapping, muscular, you know, courageous, charge into the fire kind of hero. Gideon was looking for every possible way not to do this. And God kind of kind of pushed him along and promised. He wasn't your prototypical hero, is what I'm trying to say. Okay? Now that's the comparison I want you to have in mind. Just just that aspect. 
that if you looked at Gideon, you wouldn't have thought, yep, that's my hero. That's the guy. I'm, I'm hitching my wagon to that one right there. You wouldn't do that because he didn't look like your typical hero. You're going into captivity. You're expecting your Messiah is going to be the guy to get you out of captivity. It's not going to work like that, but that's what they're thinking. So their mindset is our Messiah will be this strong, powerful, military figure. They were expecting a general. They're going to get a shepherd. They were expecting a warrior. They're going to get a peace bringer. They were expecting Judah Maccabee. They're getting Jesus of Nazareth. They were expecting this Jerusalemite, this Jew of all Jews. They get this guy from Nazareth of Galilee, which you cannot appreciate. It's like if, if I told you that the Savior of the South was coming from New York City. You would, you, New York City, if you were the commercial, you'd do that, right? You'd think, that's ridiculous. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. The Savior of the Jews must come from here, the South, Judah, not North, not the bad part of the kingdom. Of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in the South, but they didn't know that. He came from the North. When he came to start his ministry, he came from Zebulun and Aphtali and all of that in Galilee. And they thought, this is not our Messiah. He doesn't look like our Messiah. He doesn't walk like our Messiah. He doesn't talk like our Messiah. His accent is different. He doesn't eat the same food that we do. He doesn't like the same sports teams that we like. This cannot be our Messiah. And he was. But they didn't like that. So they killed him, which was the plan. And so his death saved them from the crime of killing him, which they didn't even realize what was going on. So that's the idea, okay? This salvation light of Gideon and Midian. This unlikely hero, this unexpected, this unseeming hero is the hero. Verse 5. Because every battle of the warrior is with, the King James says, confused noise. What does your Bible say? For every fruit of the trampling warrior in battle turmoil. Okay. And every garment robed in blood. What does your say? You said noisy? Noisy battle. Noisy tumult. Same idea. Mine says confused noise. And really, the word in the original language, it, it, the word is vibration. So imagine if, if you're standing in the middle of, a, of a, a battlefield, especially back then with horses and chariots and stomping, you know, charging armies, you would not be standing still. You, you would be constantly shaking. You would feel the rumble of the earth of these two armies clashing. That's the way battles are supposed to go. That's the way victories are won with garments covered in blood, with the, 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 the tumult and the chaos and the thunder and the rumble of battle with the burning and the fuel of fire. But that's not what this kind of victory is going to be. In fact, in fact the, the phrasing of the verse is you can take all of the, what you expect this battle to look like and you can throw it in the fire. It's really what Isaiah is saying. You can take the idea that our Messiah, our military champion, they think, is going to just slaughter people and massacre people and have a bunch of heads on pikes and he's going to have garments covered in blood, an image he's going to revisit later in a different way in this book. He's going to have garments covered in blood. He's going to say, I have won your victory. That's not what it's going to look like. He will be drenched in blood, but not the blood of his enemies. It'll be his own blood that his enemies put on him, but we'll get there later. This is a totally different kind of victory because it's a totally different kind of victor. It's a totally different kind of kingdom that he's building because every previous battle before this battle, this messianic fight, every previous one was done in the name of an earthly king to the service of an earthly kingdom, usually to the expansion of that earthly kingdom's borders. You fight, you kill, you take territory, and now it's your territory. Your flag goes there, and they have to retreat. 
you keep expanding, or they come in, you have to retreat, and they take the territory. It's all about conquest and seizing land and seizing territory. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants, what? Fight. In other words, if I told them to, they'd rise up weapons and they'd fight. And they'd be outnumbered and they'd all be slaughtered and killed. But that's not why I'm here. My kingdom is not of this world. I'm not here to shed blood. I'm not here to expand borders. I'm not here to put heads on pikes. Verse 6. Because unto us is not born a warrior. Unto us is not born a blood-soaked, bloody sword-holding military champion. Unto us is born as far opposite of that picture as you can get. The most innocent picture you can imagine. Unto us is born what? A child. Born a child. Therefore, not a toddler, not a two or four or five. Unto us is born a baby. Well, we are expecting Schwarzkopf. Some military strategist. We are expecting Rambo, some fighter blood stain. You're going to get a baby. And you're not going to know what to do with him. Unto us, us is God speaking within himself. Unto this multifaceted nature of the eternal being. Unto us is this new dimension brought into existence. Unto us comes this God-man See, Jesus, as we call him, Jesus, and we use that name, and we talk, we talk about like Moses in the burning bush. Well, was he talking to Jesus, or was he talking to the Father? He's talking to God. Let's not split hairs here. You have Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees God sitting on his throne, and Jesus, in John 12, says, Isaiah saw, or John says of Jesus in Isaiah uh, in John 6, that Isaiah saw him. That Isaiah, when he was talking to God in Isaiah chapter 6, that Isaiah was actually talking, according to John, to Jesus. Okay, so we use that, but let's recognize, we, we call him Jesus back then because he's Jesus now. But who Isaiah saw would not have been called Jesus then. He'd be called Jesus now, but not then, because he hadn't been born yet. Jesus is the human being born of Mary. Jesus is the God-man. Not just God, not just man, not half God and half man, but all God and all man. A, a, a being unlike any other before or since and never again to be. He is purely, uniquely the God-man. And before he was born of Mary, he was just, just God. I said, that's not enough. He was god he was God who spoke to Moses in the burning bush. He was God who spoke to Joshua before the battle of Jericho in Joshua 6. He was God who uh, spoke to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. He's God that Ezekiel sees on his throne, departing from the temple before they're invaded in Ezekiel chapter 1. Over and over and over, Ezekiel chapter 4, over and over and over, he sees God who will later be born of Mary to become a God-man. But he's not, he's not a God-man yet, but he will be. Unto us a child is born. Unto us this eternal essent being will come. This being who by nature is not eternal, is finite, has a beginning point, a birth, and an ending point, a death on a cross. And how can, how can the eternal God do that? How can the eternal God who has worked it out in his eternal mind, the only way to save humanity is to die for humanity. And God thinks to himself, well, I can't die. 
Because that just doesn't work. I'm eternal. It doesn't. I can't be killed. I can't die. I can't kill myself, and I'm certainly not going to be. Can't be killed by my creation. So I, what am I going to do? I must become something that can be killed. And what does he become? He doesn't become an animal. He doesn't become a flower. He becomes a man. He becomes a soul man, human being who can be tempted, who can age, who can laugh, who can bleed, who can die. Unto us who has always been and ever shall be, will become something that will have a beginning point, a birth, and an ending point, a death, and forever shall be a God-man. Because when this man, this God-man Jesus, ascended into heaven, and the, the apostles watched him disappear in the clouds, he takes his place on his throne, according to Daniel chapter 7, he takes his place as the God-man, 1 Timothy 2.5. He is the mediator now and forever between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is still the man who died and rose again. Before he was born, he was just God. And then he became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, John 1. He became a man permanently. It's not like he's up in heaven saying, all right, I got 33 years. I can do this. I can, I can suffer through all the, the sights and the smells and the frustrations and the bitterness and the pain and the, the blood. I can do all that for 33 years and then come back to just being God again. No, he is forever changed for you. He is the man, Christ Jesus, now and forever. He wasn't always, but then he was and he ever shall be. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Because where did this man come from? Not just from Mary, not from Joseph but from Mary and the power of God. Unto us a son, an only begotten son, is given. And this one is going to be your king. This is, this is who you're waiting on. The whole government will be on his shoulder. And his name shall be called. All right, tick him off. What does your Bible say? Uh-huh. All those words are correct. All right. Does your Bible, let's start at the beginning, or the end, rather, the end. Does your Bible have a comma in the phrase Prince of Peace? No, it says Prince of Peace. Why would it have a comma there? That's silly. Does it have a comma between everlasting and father? No, but he is everlasting, right? We'll get to how he's the father in just a minute. But let's, let's take for assumption that the Bible's correct. Not a big leap there. He is a father, according to the text. So, but is there a comma there? No. Is he mighty? Is he God? Is there a comma there? Is he wonderful? Is he a counselor? Is there a comma there? There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be. There were no commas in the, in the original language. The Hebrews didn't have commas. They just had nothing but run-on sentences. There were no commas in the Hebrew language. So you have to take the context. What is Isaiah doing? He is giving you adjective noun, adjective noun, adjective noun, and then stupidly be flippant, adjective noun. He is a prince now. He is a father now. He is God now. He is a counselor now. What kind of counselor? A wonderful one. What kind of God? A mighty one. What kind of father? An everlasting one. What kind of prince? A peace-bringing one. As opposed to, two verses earlier, the ruler who leads the army into war, this ruler leads the army into peace. How do you lead an army into peace? Like, easily you can visualize leading an army into war. Your mind goes to visuals. You know what that looks like. You hear the sound, the smells, and the sights, which is all the things he just told you to throw in the fire two verses ago. How do you lead an army into peace? 
it looks like you evangelizing. That's 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 what it looks like. Your 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 leader is in front of you. You can't see him, but he's there leading you into peace as you go preach peace to the world. Okay, so let's break those down because there's some interesting stuff there. First of all, wonderful counselor, Yaled Yoetz in the Hebrew, which means nothing, but there it is. It literally means comforting balm. So I would even translate it that way, okay? Comforting balm, because you still have noun, adjective. Yes, he's wonderful. Sure, he's a counselor. But the actual word that Isaiah uses is he is a balm. He is a thing you put on a burn to feel better. He is a, he is a, a bandage to make an injury go away. He is a salve to make a pain go away. What is he? What kind of balm is he? Is he the kind of balm that your grandmother gave you when she went to the medicine cabinet and pulled out what was probably very alcoholic and forced you to drink it and it burned because you had a, a minor cough when you were spending the night one night at her house and she wouldn't call your mom and she made you drink it? <laughs> Sorry, that got a little too real there. <laughs> no, it doesn't burn. It doesn't burn. It's a comforting balm. It's not the kind, you know, rub some dirt on it, it's going to hurt, but it'll feel better later. No, the moment you touch this salve, the pain is gone. You have pain from sin, the blood takes it away. He's a comforting balm. That's the meaning of the word. He is a mighty God. El Gavor in the Hebrew. Spelled with two B's, but it's pronounced with two V's. That's the Hebrews for you. El Gavor. And it means Jehovah's Witnesses, if you ever talk to them, they will talk about how Jesus is one of the gods. He is one of the powerful beings of you know the heavens and so forth. And they have their own personally mistranslated John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. The Word was one of the gods, is the way they'll, they'll translate it. No. In fact, their own translation, they forgot to you know, follow that butterfly effect down, because later in John 1, he calls him just the God, not a God. But anyway, he is not just a God, he is the God. He is the mighty God, which takes us very perfectly into the next one. This is the best one, if we're going to play favorites. He is everlasting. That's just his, his modifier. What kind of father is he? The everlasting father. Here's the one where everybody gets tripped up on. And they say, well, how is Jesus the father? Because he's not the father. He's even called the son in this very text. How can the son be the father? And so what most preachers will do, what most Bible scholars will do, is they'll just, they'll just jump to the easy answer and run away from it. And they'll say, well, you know, he was always God. Say that God is the father. And so there's that. Now let's move on. But there's more to it than just that. Because the word father is not used here in the same way as used at the beginning of the text by implication. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Anybody who makes that statement is speaking in the first person as a parent. And if male, as a father. This kind of father is not that kind of father. That kind of father is God the Father. Who when Jesus taught us to pray, taught us to pray our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And how he is the only begotten son of that father. That father-son relationship is there. But that's not what this word means. Somebody read. I wrote it down. No, there. Somebody read Genesis 45, verse 8. And look at another way the word father is used in inspired record. Genesis 45, verse 8. I know it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Who is the person who got the fancy coat, who through amazing providential circumstances ended up being Pharaoh's number two guy? Joseph. Joseph. 
And how does Joseph describe himself in this verse? He calls himself the who of Pharaoh. Huh? The father of Pharaoh, which he absolutely was. Ain't he wasn't Pharaoh's father. If you want to go round about metaphorically, you could say, well, he was like a son to Pharaoh. All that fine and sure and good and metaphorical, yeah. But he uses the word father because the Hebrews use that word sometimes to mean guardian. Just to mean protector, a looker out for her. And that's what Joseph's job was. He looked out for Pharaoh and Pharaoh's business and things. He was a guardian to Pharaoh's, you know, um, stuff in Pharaoh's empire. He was a steward to Pharaoh's reign. So he was a father to Pharaoh. Jesus is described for you here as your guardian. The, the word to emphasize in this is not father, because it just means guardian. It is everlasting. This is Isaiah's way of saying, the God who has always saved you, the God who has always had your back, the God who has always been there to answer your prayers and to deliver you, the God who split the Red Sea, the God who wrestled Jacob, the God who spoke to Joshua, the God who gave you victory after victory, the God who put you in captivity and got you out again, your Savior God, your guardian God, from always and forever, is this guy right here. It's always been him. And so when he comes, and he's born of Mary, and he's from the wrong side of the tracks, and he doesn't speak the same dialect as you, and he has funny ways of, of, of visualizing in his parables, and he just doesn't look right, you remember he may not look the part, but he has always been your savior. He's the one. He's the only one. He's your everlasting guardian. Now, is that not is that not more worth studying than just, oh, father, you're God's father. Let's move on. Yeah, he's everlasting. He's always been your savior. And what's the last one? He's your peace-bringing prince. He's your peaceful prince. Probably not translated peaceful prince because that would simply limit peace to just his own person. He's peaceful. Do I have to be peaceful? He's peaceful. He is the prince of peace. He's the prince whose banner is peace itself, whose message is not war but peace, whose fight is not with bloodshed but with spiritual conquest of saving souls, not killing lives. He's a peace-bringing prince. Prince. He is the um, Shar Shalom. Have you ever heard the, the word Shalom? The Hebrew expression, it's, it's the way Hebrews say hello, but it doesn't mean hello. It means peace. You walk into someone's house and you say shalom. It means I'm not here to kill you. I'm not here as your enemy. I'm here as your friend. Or you would say shalom to them. You can come in as my friend. It's, it's, it's peace. He is the peace-bringing one. A concept that we take for granted, but which these Jews would be blown away by. Because they're terrified of nations right now conquering them. They're being threatened, for lack of a better word, of going into captivity again. So their mind goes back to Egypt. And they're thinking, how are we going to get out of this? We need a conqueror, a champion, a fighter, a bloodshedder. And my Savior has promised to me explicitly as not being that. And even as I say that, it, it really shouldn't be that crazy. Because Moses did not come swinging swords. How did Moses save Israel? By eating some unleavened bread and drinking some fruit of the vine. And waiting in a house covered in blood. And then God did all the rest. Right? And thus pass over. There was not, you know, stabby, stabby, let's run from town. It was, let's wait on God and God will deliver. And that same God, who's always been your deliverer, is here now. And he will deliver you again. Not just from Babylon, but from Satan. Verse 7. Now having said all that, 
you still got some hard times coming in the, in, in the interim. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This is basically the end of the Messianic portion of the chapter. Isaiah says, here is your Messiah. He's coming. His government, his kingdom will increase exponentially. Peace, therefore, will increase exponentially. The first and only kingdom in history whose borders increase, not through bloodshed, but through peace. There will be no end to it. It's endless, expansive kingdom. He will sit on the throne of David. That's his kingdom. And he will bring order. He will bring establishment. He will bring judgment. He will bring justice. He will bring fair decisions and righteousness for all. From henceforth, even forever. And how is all this going to be done? Not how in the sense of how could God possibly pull this off? Not that kind of how, but through what uh, avenue, through what procedure? Through his zeal, the King James says. Is that what your Bible says? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. In other words, you can take any king in history. You can put him on a throne. There's going to be somebody behind that king who wants that throne. And more often than not in history, a king has gotten stabby-stabby in the back, fallen off the throne, and someone else comes and sits on the throne. All right? It's not just something for fantasy novels and fantasy stories where people are plotting to destroy kings and take over kingdoms and things. That's just history. Okay? It still happens today. We just use men in suits with with you know more convenient and subtle means of execution, but it's still about regime change and taking over kingdoms and such. Well, no one is taking the throne from this, this guy. Once Jesus sits on his throne, you are not taking him from it. You can't force him off of it. He's not abdicating it. He's staying on that throne forever. The zeal is what is keeping him on that throne. His fervent passion for being your king will prevent anyone from taking it or him from abdicating it. Now that's verse 7. That's where the fun ends. Verse 8. The Lord sent word into Jacob, and it has lighted upon Israel. So new prophecy, and this is a bad one. The mind says it has lighted upon Israel. What does yours say there? Fallen. Fallen. All right. Imagine an autumn leaf falling from a tree, breaking and swaying in the wind and just gently resting. It's a very beautiful image. And what follows is some bad stuff. Verse 9. All the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitant of Samaria, that say with pride and with stoutness of heart, stout meaning puffed up, arrogant hearts, the bricks are falling down, verse 10, but we will build with better stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we'll turn them into cedars. This is the response from the northern kingdom, their arrogance in response to God's punishment. It's so great that thunder's rolling as I'm talking about this. So God is going to smack them down. He's going to break all their walls and all their buildings, and they'll say, this is fine. We can build better and bigger, and we can make it better than even before. God's going to mow down all the trees. That's fine. We'll plant and make better trees. Listen, you are getting the wrong idea from this. God has no limit to the amount of axes he can wield against your trees. This is not the right response. So in their arrogance, they think we can make better. Verse 10, your bricks are falling down, but we'll build, oh, that's, I just read that. Verse 11, therefore the Lord shall set up, verse 11, the adversaries of Rezin against him. Rezin is the king of Syria in the north, uh, or north of the north, and join his enemies together. So you have Judah down here, Israel above them, and Syria above them. We talked about this a week ago or two weeks ago. In Israel and Syria are conspiring together, and they're plotting and alliancing together, trying to hold off the Syrian invasion. So you got like you have Judah here, and you have Israel here, and Syria here, and Assyria here, and they're coming this way. So they're trying to team up, and they're trying to get Judah to join them. And Judah just wants to make their friends with Egypt, and 
Meanwhile, God's over here like, hello, I can save the world, and they don't listen to God. So Assyria's coming in, and they're going to attack Syria. They're going to attack Israel. They're going to get all the way to Judah and Jerusalem, and then be turned back. So that's the background of what's going on here. He's going to set up the adversaries of Rezin against him. He's going to come in with Assyria, is who he's talking about, and join his enemies together. Verse 12. And the Syrians before and the Philistines behind, they shall devour Israel with open mouth. Philistines are look over here. Uh, with open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Um, the King James says the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. What does your Bible say? Syrians on the east, I think. So on the west. Uh, does everyone say east and west? Yeah. yeah east and west. The ancient um, ancient people called sunrise ahead of them and they called um, sunset behind them. And they spoke of it in temporal terms. Um, what is and what has been. Even though you think the end of a day would imply, you know, a new day might start. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't think that. The, the sunrise, at the beginning of the day, they would think of the sunrise as the future. And they would think of the sunset as the past. And so they would use words like that, before and behind. Ahead of you and behind you. And so that's the way it's used here. But yours just says east and west. That's what it means. And they will devour Israel with an open mouth. They will just consume and conquer and all bloodshed. All the things that the Messiah is not bringing, pagan armies are bringing. And after all that bloodshed and all that conquest and Israel being completely bombarded, God says, and after, even after all that, I'm not done. My hand, my spanking hand, is not retracted. Verse 13. For the people turn not unto him that smites them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Who is smiting Israel? It's not Assyria. Assyria is the fly swatter. Who's holding the fly swatter? God is. Assyria is the switch Who's holding the switch? God is. It's Israel's backside. It's Assyria's flyswatter. It's God holding the flyswatter, doing the smacking. And so my hand is not done doing the smacking. I am going to, verse 14, cut off. Oh, sorry. The whole point I was making in verse 13. I'm doing the smacking, but you haven't repented. So more smacking to come. More, more spanking to come. Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and tail, beginning and ending, front and back, branch and rush, all in one day. He is going to instantly, thoroughly decimate, consume, destroy. King James says cut off, destroy, consume. The head and the tail. Uh, and you'll get a perfect description of what those are. It, it refers actually to the leaders and the other kinds of leaders. We'll get that in a few verses later. And also branch and rush. Um, everything you can put your eyes on. The, the whole of it, not just the big stuff, but even down to the ground level will be decimated. Verse 15, more. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet that teaches lies, he's the tail. So look at the people that you were trying to rely on instead of relying on God. And that's what he said just a couple of verses ago. I spanked you, but like a disobedient child, you didn't turn back to the parent like you're supposed to. You look to other people for your help. You look to the ancient and the honorable. Well, this person is old, as if he's not. This person has wisdom, as if he doesn't. This person is of great renown. So let's listen to this guy tell us what to do. Or here's this prophet. This prophet will give us good news. Bad sign, because usually they don't if they're telling the truth. But this prophet keeps telling us things we want to hear. That's great. Let's listen to this guy. Isaiah's over there telling us doom and gloom. Let's get him out of here. Get him off the airs. Let's get this guy on the television telling everybody it's going to be okay. And everyone listen to them right into the ditch. They listen to the ancient, the honorable, the head. I'm going to cut that right off. 
Listen to the prophet that teaches lies, the tale. I'm going to cut that right off. Verse 16. For the leaders of this people are causing them to err, causing them to go astray. And they that are led by them are destroyed. Blind leading the blind. Everybody goes into the ditch. Verse 17. Incidentally, when the blind lead the blind into the ditch on a national level, weep for the next generation because they'll come up in the ditch and they won't even know how they got there. Verse 17. Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young ones. King James says young men. We're not talking about 20-somethings or even 15, 16. We're talking about the, the, the next generation is what it means. You've got these leaders who are leading the people into the ditch, and then up comes the next generation in the ditch, just in, in this terrible environment. And the Lord has no joy in them. Neither shall he have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. Oh, but God, it's not their fault. They were born in that situation. So when they do evil, you know, it's their environment that's forcing them to do evil. No, it's not. It's their environment maybe telling them it's okay to do evil, but who says you should listen to your environment? Stop listening to your environment. Your environment lies to you. So if you do evil, you don't get to go to God and say, my circumstances. You don't get to God and say, my environment. You don't get to go to God and say, well, I was look at, look at, the, look at the neighborhood that I grew up in. Look at the culture that I was forced into. They told me this was okay, so I did it. So what do you got? What God, you gotta let me into heaven. I'm stained in sin. You gotta let me in. No. No, no mercy. Because you chose to do evil. You chose to be a hypocrite. You chose to be unmerciful, so you'll have no mercy. And every mouth speaks folly. Not just your leaders, but all people speak folly. And for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Alright, we'll have to stop there. We'll pick it up. We'll finish nine and go into ten. We only have a few verses left anyway. So we'll start there.